0: the rock the scores nba podcast my name is joseph casharo and i am joined as always by co-host joe what up cash How, how's that coffee bro buddy it's in my uh, blue jays back-to-back world series mug so it tastes extra
1: delicious it better be i got to tell the listeners man so cash messaged me at 9 30 this morning it's currently two minutes shy of 10 o'clock he messaged me to say just making a coffee We'll send you the link for recording soon, and about twenty-five minutes later, the link appeared. So, I just want everyone to know later, it was twenty-two. Okay, minutes sorry, later. twenty-two minutes. Just, yeah. just want to give everyone an indication of how seriously you take your morning Joe. Yeah, and uh, I'm sure you. I, I've seen the espresso machine you have in your apartment. I'm sure you're taking care to, you know, tamp that shit down, and uh, just put a lot of care into your morning brew. Yeah. whereas you know, I'm just, I'm just tossing in some grounds and pushing a button to, to let that shit drip. But yeah,
0: you, you do know that I take my coffee seriously as someone who's been to my place in a scene that I have in a very small uh, kitchen workspace, about four or five different coffee related <laughs> machines. Um, yeah, the reason it took longer this morning is because after turning the machine on, I realized that uh, I needed to change the filter. And so that was a bit of a process. You have to soak the filter for five minutes. It was a whole thing.
1: I see. Yeah.
0: My apologies, but here we are. (laughs) Ready to to dive into a not so exciting week of (laughs) NBA news. Look, last episode, we were able to dive into all of the offseason goings on. This week, a little different because all the big names are pretty much off the board in free agency after those first couple days, which we covered last week. The Dame trade request, demand, whatever you want to call it, we talked about last week, the Harden trade request we talked about last week. I mean, the only update there really is I think yesterday, uh, and I'm not sure who reported it out, but someone reported he's adamant to like find a way to the Clippers, I guess, <laughs> in a similar way that Dame is to Miami. But at least in Harden's case, there's some leverage there because he's only got one year left on his deal. And so, you know, if you're a team he's not interested in, there is a, perhaps a bit more risk or a lot more risk i should say in him not being keen to suit up for a team with a, a year left on his deal I'm not saying he would do that but i think it's more of a risk with one year on his deal as opposed to with 216 million dollars and four years left
1: on dames deal but yeah but i mean he's also 82 years old yeah like in nba years yes basically like he's in these twilight years i just think for him to risk losing a season. I don't think he would, you know, sit out an entire year but just to further diminish his value by like holding out it, when seemingly there's already very little interest in procuring his services. I just I don't know, man. I mean, this is all sort of going the way that I think we expected it to, right? When on the last episode we were like this is probably going to drag on for a while in both of these cases and in Harden's case it seems like the most likely outcome is him just going into the season as a 76er and we'll see what happens from there. I, I do think it's interesting that our Dame to Toronto idea is finally starting to get some traction, starting to catch on. So uh, we'll see if the noise ratchets up on that piece at all. But uh, yeah, I, I fully expect that, you know, we can come back for our next episode and, the one after that, and probably the one after that, and we'll still have these two big potential trade pieces still looming out there. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, Summer League's going on. We we'd never really talk about Summer League on this pod just because I think while it's fun and interesting to watch and you can learn some things about the players who participate, it ultimately winds up just being a fun little showcase that doesn't have a lot of predictive power. Exactly.
0: So what we are going to do today is... We're going to, I mean, we're going to spend a few minutes here off the top talking about the one major piece of news that actually has come out since we last recorded, and that was the NBA unveiling the details and the format for the NBA Cup, the mid-season tournament. And then we're going to dive into a couple teams, but before we do that, let's talk mid-season tourney. I did a video on it this week, and I will say I am... Or I was pleasantly surprised by the details, by the format, and by how all in I already am on this thing and how bought in I am because of how they baked it into the regular season, because of how non-disruptive, how not disruptive it is to the season. My concern all along, and I think we had talked about this, was that I, I just had a hard time believing players would care about it or fans would care about it because it was, it could just be too gimmicky and how do you to it at the same time as the regular season the way they've done it where it's baked into the regular season so the games themselves other than that final which obviously has its own meaning because it's a final it's to win something and also the difference between winning it and losing it for each player is three hundred thousand dollars big difference between the all-star game when the difference is seventy five thousand dollars so that has meaning in its own right but other than that game all of the games are just one of like 82 in the regular season anyway so you can still care about them at least as much as you would care about a regular season game. And if you have any you know interest in your team winning something more, you care about them a little more than the rest of the regular season game. So I'm happy with all that, but I did want to mention you were on board with this pretty much from the beginning. Like you were always more optimistic about it than I was. So, I mean, I said I was pleasantly surprised. Is the format better than even you envisioned it was? or Is it about... What you expected? What are your thoughts on the NBA Cup now that we know how it's actually going to work?
1: No, I like uh, the way that they have sort of portioned it out and having the predetermined dates where they're going to play the tournament games. You know what? I think it's every Tuesday and Friday in November, um, other yeah, than Election so Day. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And as far as just like the coherence of it and helping fans understand like like when these games are happening, what they mean, it's just going to like clarify, I think, the entire thing, which is a, an important consideration because I remember when it came out, some of the details had trickled out, you know, when that announcement was made and we were talking about it. And even though I was optimistic, we were both kind of trying to figure out the logistics and how the scheduling was going to work and it all seemed a little bit confusing. I think this really simplifies it, and it's going to make it very clear when those games are going on. If it's an NBA Cup night, one of those Tuesdays or Fridays, it will be apparent to the the players playing and the fans watching what is actually at stake. So I think that's super helpful. But my feeling about it always was, is like, why not? You know, what's the downside? We're trying to add a little bit of spice to the regular season, create some added incentive, even if you don't think that there's that much added incentive because of this new thing. And what does it mean to the players? What does it mean to the fans of the teams participating? And I I said at the time, and it's still true, the only thing that is going to determine how meaningful this is, is how seriously the players take it. And I think ultimately, like maybe for like the round robin stage, they're not going to take it that much more seriously than they would any other regular season game. But even if they take it like 20% more seriously, I still think that's a huge win. And then once you get into sort of the knockout phase, I just think even if there's no like precedent, there's no built-in history or stakes for these players where it's like, okay, the playoffs, you know what you're playing for. Like This is a completely different thing. And we don't know what it's going to mean to the players because we've never seen it happen before. But I, I just feel like as... Any person with like any competitive instincts whatsoever, let alone a professional athlete, you get into these situations and what is at stake is like you win or you lose and they're going to want to win because winning is cool. And even if it's just like this ostensibly meaningless mid-season trophy, like don't you want to beat the other team? Like, and you know, even if you're a max player making 40 plus million dollars a year, wouldn't it be cool to like win half a million dollars for like the end of the bench guy on your team who's maybe making that for the entire season. Like I think that will actually mean something and I think it's going to be cool to see some regular season games with added stakes, you know, even if you don't necessarily think those stakes are going to are going to play to the point that, you know, we're we're watching something akin to playoff basketball.
0: Even for that max player making 40 plus million dollars a year. Look, I get that the money wouldn't be the same as it would be for the end of bench guy on a minimum contract. But listen, again, it's not like the All-Star game where you can say "Eh, 100 grand and 25 for the losers, So it's a 75 grand difference. Like, yo, half a mil is half a mil, even to a max player, okay? And the difference in winning or losing that final game being 300 grand, like these are much bigger stakes, even for a very wealthy professional athlete than a lot of, you know, exhibition-like contests would be. I think the motivation will be there. And the thing I like about it too is, from the standpoint of incentivizing the regular season more, I think there is, like you said, even if it's a 20% addition to how they treat these games, I do think the amount of respect that even genuine contenders will treat these regular season games has increased by some measure. I don't know what that measure is, but it's increased by some measure. And to be honest, even if it's 1%, that's 1% more than it was before this existed. On the flip side, I think this also aligns with the NBA's continued mission, especially under Adam Silver, to dissuade the league's worst teams from giving up on the year too early. Because if you're a young team, whatever, call them a tanking team, a rebuilding team, whatever. If you're a young team that knows in the grand scheme of things, the grand scheme of the regular season, the playoff chase, the championship chase, you're overmatched. You're not really in it this year, but I don't know. You have a randomly hot week in November. A couple, we talked about this. Remember that magic run last year when I think they were like five and 20 before they ripped off five or six straight wins against Boston, Toronto. I can't remember who else say you're a young team that for whatever reason you have a great week in November and now all of a sudden you're in the mix in some fashion in the NBA Cup, which again, the bonuses start as soon as you make the knockout rounds of that tournament. There's extra money for you that's not included in your contract. So like there's something to play for pretty much right away just to get out of the group stage of it. If you're one of those teams who otherwise, you know, you're 10 games under 500 already in November, the season's pretty much over. Instead now, you could be a team of extremely motivated young players in League Cup contests, if you have a chance in that because of a good week you had in November or whatever. So again, I just think from both perspectives, whether you're a contender who now has more motivation to treat every game with respect, or you're on the other end of the spectrum and you suddenly have more motivation to at least through no you know November, December, keep a certain level. I think this has incentivized the regular season, the first half of it, at least, on both ends of the spectrum. And I think that's a win. I think from a viewing perspective, look, you know, we're in a different boat because we cover the league. We eat, breathe, and sleep this league. There are a lot of hardcore basketball fans out there that are like that too. But you have to remember, the majority of sports watching people, even if they might be hardcore sports fans in general, are not hardcore in on one league. And so the attention gets divided and the NFL takes most of it, especially in the first half of the NBA season. And it's often been said that like the average fan doesn't really pay attention to the NBA until after Christmas. I'm not saying this is all of a sudden going to take a person who was, you know, leaning more NFL the first half of the year and all of a sudden they're going to be more interested in the NBA. I don't think that. But can you just add some viewers in that first half of the season with games that have some more meaning? Like in that sense, I think it's a win because the first half of the season has more meaning. The pre-Christmas season, portion of the schedule has more meaning than it did last week. There were just a lot of things going for this tournament and this format. Again, too, don't discount the fact that with that media rights deal that has only two seasons left on it, where I think the negotiations are gonna be underway soon, where streaming services are trying to get in on the action. You know, Disney and Turner are trying to keep their hands in the mix. NBC reportedly wants back in on the action. The NBA now has a shiny new toy that they can dangle in those negotiations for one of these media giants to fight for exclusive access to. Just a lot of things all around are working for the NBA. The last thing I'll mention too, and it's not necessarily a win or a loss to me, but it is also interesting the NBA has now found a way because the semis in the final are in Vegas. The NBA has now find a, found a way to bring real meaningful NBA games to Vegas, which I think is continuing a pattern here where most pro leagues are going that route. We know the NBA is going to be in Vegas at some point in the near-ish future. They already have summer league there, but again, now they have real games that count in Vegas. A lot of players are, you know, based there in the offseason. Now, it also is a continuation of that trend where, like, the NBA and Vegas continue this kind of dance with each other.
1: I would just add on one thing just to the point about, you know, a team like Orlando or Houston, like a a middling or, like, lower-rung team maybe going on a heater and finding themselves in the NBA cup finals unexpectedly. Like I think that would be exciting. I still feel like the best outcome for this would be two like legit heavyweight contenders being in the finals. Like that's what I think is going to give this some real heft and a feeling like, Oh, this actually matters because we're seeing that the best teams are actually making it through. And then you, you find yourself in a situation where, you know, let's say it is something like Nuggets-Bucks in the finals, right? Where you could be like, you know what, this could be a preview of the actual finals. Like this could actually be a data point where in the spring we can look back and see like, hey, these two teams played, everyone was healthy. The Stars played like 40 plus minutes and there's actually something to take away from this. Whereas I think for the most part, in this day and age, when you're looking back at regular season matchups and trying to see what it means in a playoff setting, there's like very little to draw from because stars are sitting out and teams aren't going, you know, gung ho trying to win the game. Like they're not throwing all of their schemes out there and, and like getting super inventive. Like I think this is potentially an opportunity to to like get a feel for what a playoff matchup between two legit heavyweights might look like. I think that's a great point. Yeah, when I mentioned the kind of bad
0: teams potentially catching heaters, I definitely didn't mean like getting all the way to the final. I just meant more like even if it's, you know, within the first few group games, a team catches a heater and is in the mix going into those last group games or even you know, like all of a sudden that sixth group game, I guess, or whatever it is at the end of November has a lot of meaning for that young team that is trying to get more money, right? If they Maybe one more win gets them into the knockout phase or whatever it is. There's all of a sudden a much more meaningful game on the calendar or games on the calendar for that team of potentially now very motivated youngsters than there would have been in most years when they're just a, you know, 6-19 and 19 yeah. team at that point. I think we can put a bow on the NBA Cup talk there. Do you want to take an early break, come back, and talk about... The Dallas Mavericks and the Atlanta Hawks. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the scores YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, well, Fun, you came up with the idea to talk Mavs and Hawks today. So I will see the floor to you.
1: Why did you want to talk about Atlanta and Dallas today? I mean, for a couple of reasons. I think I've always been fascinated in the parallel tracks of these two teams, like they're kind of spiritually connected now and forever by the draft night trade that sent Luca to Dallas and Trey to Atlanta. And it's just interesting to see the the similar paths that they've taken ever since then, right? Like they both have these possibly aberrant conference finals appearances. And then, you know, almost immediately afterward, they revert to being like very average teams. And in both cases, you wonder if, those conference finals runs maybe created a false expectation that's proven very difficult to live up to, and it's accelerated you know, their timelines and put undue pressure on situations and led to you know a head coach being fired in Atlanta. And just just a general sense of like failing to meet expectations that has led to all of this, you know seeming unrest and dysfunction. And leads Dallas to, I mean, there's a lot of things that went into Dallas' decision to trade for Kyrie Irving. Um, Mainly the fact that they were unable to retain Jalen Brunson. But uh, I just think it's, they find themselves in weirdly similar spots now. Um, And uh, I also, you know, if you look at like the last week of transactions, basically, it's been pretty quiet. And two of the more notable transactions were made by these two teams uh, for Atlanta, extending DeJounte Murray, which I don't know if it's a huge surprise. I think especially in light of the new CBA stipulation that extensions could start at 140% of a player's previous salary rather than 120%. I really think that helped facilitate that extension for DeJounte. I think that's very good news for Atlanta that they were able to get that done. And then the Mavs uh, able to pull off a sign and trade to get Grant Williams, who I think is just a wonderful fit there and adds to what I think has been a really strong offseason for a team that really needed uh, to have a strong offseason. So I think basically it's been good news for both of these teams, but I still come away feeling like, okay, what does it all mean? Where are these teams actually going? how good are they actually going to be this year and in coming years? And I I just think that put us in a good spot to maybe talk about and assess both of them, Um, especially, you know, in light of Atlanta being the top rumored suitor for Pascal Siakam right now. And, you know, we can get into talking, I guess, about what a package for him might look like, how he might fit there and where that fits into what might be their grand vision. But I, I mean, what, what did you think of, of those transactions and where it leaves these respective teams. I
0: liked extending DeJounte. I mean, I think he's a very good player. He's made an all-star team. Could probably say at worst, he's a borderline all-star probably, you know, every year for his prime going forward for a few years. They've locked him up now through that prime on a fair deal in the current marketplace. They've now tied his team control pretty much to Trey Young's, which, you know, if, given what they gave up to acquire DeJounte Murray makes sense. I also like the fact that they made that move with Houston, where they took on those discarded Houston youngsters, and then they used those you know, Ty-Ty Washington and to get, Usman Garuba. Right, to get Patty Mills. I thought that was you know a fine piece of business. But it's hard for me to think positively or come away feeling good about the Hawks offseason so far. When the John Collins trade that we've been waiting for for years ended up just being a straight salary dump. I think that was an embarrassing example of asset management or asset mismanagement. And I know you can't necessarily grade deals or evaluate them based on everything that's happened before. But I think one, I think you can look at it as like, okay, take all that crap out of it and just think of it as like how good John Collins is as a player, whatever you think of him he's a good NBA player. He's a good enough NBA player where then when you tack on the amount of time and money and energy the Hawks have invested in him over the years to end up finally moving him for essentially, you know, a salary dump in a transaction with a team in Utah that owns like 640 first round picks. I couldn't squeeze one of them out of there not even in a protected manner. I don't know. It just left such a sour taste in my mouth that even though I agree with you that for the most part, they've had a fine offseason, I just can't get over that. And, you know, even if you read a lot of the stuff coming from Atlanta, from the the beat people that are plugged into the team on a more daily basis, and you kind of read about eh, the confusion about who's really running things there, like Landry Fields seems to be bit of a puppet GM for Nick Ressler, who's the son of the team owner, Tony Wrestler, and also Quinn Snyder, who reportedly has a lot more control than his head coach title would uh, insinuate. I don't know. There's, there's a lot going on there between the John Collins move and the front office confusion. I just don't like where it's going in general. Like that stuff usually doesn't end well when there's confusion about front office roles and who's really running things. Like, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can say that, but ultimately the moves are going to speak for themselves. And even in the John Collins situation, like clearly the impetus was just to get off of that contract and get salary relief. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I just think that ultimately, if they'd been willing to take back more long-term salary, they probably could have gotten something better than what they've got in terms of draft capital. Like, better than just a distant second-round pick and, you know, Rudy Gay, who I'm assuming they're just going to waive now, right? Like, I... Or did he, he... He might have even moved to OKC in that Patty Mills deal. I can't... I can't remember now. But basically, the fact that Utah was just able to take John Collins into their cap space, I think... Yeah, sorry, he, he did move to okay. OKC. So I think that was a big selling point for Atlanta, right? Like they they didn't have to have any matching salary coming back. Utah was just absorb it. And they washed their hands of that deal. You can say that all the times that they could have or should have traded John Collins leading up to this moment and maybe gotten something better in return, like that was the failure. I'm fine to say that. But in the situ- situation they were in, I think just getting off of the deal and giving themselves the flexibility to go in a different direction. I think it makes sense. I I again, the timing of it you can quibble with, but like I wrote this after the trade happened and we even talked about it last year when we were talking about John Collins and why there wasn't really any kind of like bidding war in a lot of teams that wanted to acquire him. We mentioned Indiana as a team where he'd fit really well. I still think that's true, but like find me another team where he would have made a ton of sense. Like even in Utah, he joins this front court log jam where I'm not entirely sure where he's going to fit or how it's going to work. And what I've said in the past about why that is, is just like, if you look at what teams want in a power forward right now, there are sort of like two particular camps, I think. One is you want your four to basically be an oversized, wing, right, who is going to be able to shoot a ton of threes off a of movement, ideally be like a connective playmaker, be somebody who can play with like a wingy skill set. You know, I'm thinking like a Harrison Barnes or a Boyan Bogdanovich or, you know, somebody in that mold where you're essentially just having uh, like the four position be another wing position. And then the other types of power forwards you see are like legit big men who you know ideally will have some of that skill set too where they can shoot the ball but it's more I think about like their ability to be defensive floor raisers like to be secondary rim protectors and rebounders and so I'm thinking like you know Evan Mobley Jaron Jackson like that type of power forward where if you're not gonna have a wing playing the four then you want that guy to be like somebody who can insulate your five defensively. And John Collins is basically neither of those things, right? (laughs) Like he's very much a traditional power forward in terms of his size and his skill set, where he's not really a playmaker in the last couple of years. He hasn't really been a floor spacer either. That's been a huge element in like the drop off in his value, right? Like he went from being a 40% three point shooter to like shooting under 30% last year. And he's got, you know, a little bit more of a back to the basket game. He's obviously a really effective role man, but because he can't play the five defensively, you got to put him next to, you know, a legitimate center. And most of those guys are going to be like screen and dive type centers as well. So that makes his offensive role really complicated. It just makes him a very tough fit in a lot of places. So I think Atlanta wound up in this place where there wasn't much of a market for him and just getting off of the salary was the best thing they could do. So if you want to say like the process leading up to it, like they, they waited too long, that's fine. I'm, I'm on board with that. They could have done better if they'd moved on earlier. But given the situation, I, I don't think just moving on, like getting off of that contract is like the worst thing in the world. And I think, you know, again, locking up DeJounte on what I think is a, you know, pretty fair market, value deal like that's good news for them and they whether they decide they want to move on from him in the future or they think they can make it work with him and Trey it obviously didn't work as well as they'd hoped it would in year one they're obviously hoping that you know with Quinn Snyder now he can come up with some tweaks that are going to make it a little bit more functional offensively get those guys playing off of each other more working in a more cooperative fashion rather than doing the you know my turn your turn thing that I think defined a lot of last season for them. I can see it moving in a more positive direction. So, you know, you have that. I think you have the, the, like the Clint Capella piece is one that's sort of still out there where I don't know if they see him as being part of their long-term future. I don't know if a Kongu is ever really going to be physically capable of being like a full-time five. That's sort of another question they have to answer, right? Like if they are going to move on from Capella, is a Akongu their center of the future? Like, can he be that? Because he's undersized for that position. But then if he's playing power forward, I think you run into a lot of the same offensive issues that you were already dealing with, where if you have to play him next to a, a traditional center, then, you know, especially with DeJounte not really being a particularly good floor spacer at the two Uh, It just brings about some challenges. So there are still a lot of those questions that they face, but they have this sort of established veteran talent base along with, I think, some pretty exciting young talent in like, I mean, AJ Griffin, I think, is going to be really good. Uh, Kobe Bufkin, we'll see, but look pretty good in Summer League. Uh, Jalen Johnson, I think, could be really interesting. They have like a glut of... Big wings and forwards, which is another reason I think that Collins was expendable. But like between you know Jalen Johnson, Sadiq Bay, I guess Akongu, you put into that mix as well. Like the the front court, it just felt like Collins had become superfluous there. So,
0: yeah, DeAndre Hunter, Hunter, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll I, go. Let's go into another season talking about if this guy can stay healthy and put it all
1: together for a whole season. Because the Flash, yeah. no, I'm I'm past that man. Like I I. Uh, Not that I've like totally given up on him, but I'm looking at him now as kind of a negative value asset on the contract that he's on.
0: No, it's it's. I was going to tease you about it, but it's genuinely understandable why you would forget to list him when naming those other guys that are in the mix for them. Okay, so then what does the Siakam package look like? Or I guess the better way to ask it is if you're running the Hawks, what's the most you give up to bring Pascal Siakam to the mix?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question because again, like... Does he really fit with let's say the you know the the idealized starting five of this team is like what Trey, DeJounte, Siakam, and either a Kongu or a Capella? That feels kind of tough from a spacing perspective. And nice I know Trey it. is the kind of point guard who can just sort of make stuff work because of his brilliant passing ability, but I don't know. I mean, I, I see Siakam as being a way better fit in Indiana, which is like the other rumored suitor for him. But from, I mean, like Zach Lowe said on his last podcast, that he doesn't think that the Indiana noise is particularly real, which is, it's interesting to me because I, again, I think he's a way better fit there. But in Atlanta, Dude, the yeah, I don't know. are
0: a, a star forward away from being real good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So thinking about that and how that that fit might be kind of tenuous offensively uh, that that's where I run into issues trying to figure out what I would give up if I were Atlanta and then you know is there a way to make that palatable for Toronto like if you're constructing a package that you think makes sense because I I think for Atlanta like they would want Hunter to be the centerpiece of that deal obviously. I don't know that Toronto wants anything to do with DeAndre Hunter on that contract, especially given like they're trying to rebalance their roster. And so getting a guy like Hunter who is duplicative with the, you know, what a bunch of their guys on their team already do wouldn't really help in that regard. Like if I'm the Raptors, I'm basically demanding that one of, if not both of Bufkin and Griffin be in that deal, but you got to get one of those guys like Toronto needs guards. Those are the best young guards on the Hawks roster at least one of those guys needs to be in there. And I would want AJ Griffin if I was the Raptors. So, I mean, is that a bridge too far for the Hawks with Siakam on an expiring deal? I would say it shouldn't be because Siakam's a really good player. Like, at least top 20 player in the league, you could argue top 15, right? You've got to give up good stuff to get a player that good. But, again... Pascal Siakam him,
0: averaged roughly 25 points, eight rebounds, six assists last season while leading the league in minutes.
1: That's the thing. So you know, I would say like you can't really afford to get cute like prospect hugging when it comes to acquiring uh you know that type of talent. But then thinking about the potential fit issues there, that's when I would maybe get a little bit queasy as the Hawks with including some of their, you know, their most prized prospects in order to get a guy who might not be Optimized in their ecosystem. So I think the kind of most equitable construction that I could come up with is like, let's say AJ Griffin, and you figure out like the salary filler, I suppose, that makes you feel best as Atlanta. So I guess you could say it's DeAndre Hunter, and like Toronto could just say, okay, we'll take him if it means we're getting AJ Griffin. Maybe they reroute him to a third team. And Uh, That doesn't get them all the way there in terms of salary matching. Like you would have to have, you know, uh, Bogdanovich probably in that deal as well. So like Bogdanovich, Hunter, and Griffin. Let's say like that's the that's the offer. No picks. Is that doing it for you as the Raptors? And is that like palatable for you as the Hawks?
0: If I'm the Raptors, I say no chance in hell with no picks. And that's the thing. It's like because of the dearth of draft capital Atlanta has, they can't they can't trade. A first rounder outright till 2029. That actually, 2029 is the only pick Atlanta can actually trade outright. They can offer swaps in 28 and 30. I believe they have Sacramento's like top 12 protected pick this year. There, there's basically no draft capital left there after the trade for Murray. And so, if you're the Raptors, I think that gives you the more leverage to say, listen, you can't give us the draft capital some other teams might be able to. We need Griffin and Buffkin for this to work. Or if you only want to give us one of those guys, then you got going to have real light protections on one of those 28, 29, or 30 picks. And maybe that's too much for Atlanta. Maybe because of all they've already spent when it comes to draft capital, they are queasy about giving up, you know, a twenty, twenty-nine lightly protected pick because who knows what they're going to be then. But I think if you're Toronto, you have to like set those demands. And I definitely don't think... Like, the, the package you threw out there, I still think it's interesting they get Griffin. I think, mean, you know, that's a win in itself, but no draft capital for a player of Siakam's caliber, even with one year left on his deal, I just don't think that's enough.
1: You could you could probably find yourself, like, a protected first-round pick for Bogdanovich, though, if you wanted to turn around and move him. Fair. Or, I mean, he's still young enough that, like, he could be a part of your Like, again, that's another yeah. guard in the door, right? Like, yeah. I, I don't... I wouldn't hate that as the Raptors. Like, it's not really fair value for Siakam, but they're not going to get fair value for Siakam. So they're in a situation where they either need to extend him or they need to find the best offer that they can. That is the situation they put themselves in. They can't go into this season with Siakam on an expiring deal. They just can't. So if that's the best they can do, I would swallow hard and I would take it as the Raptors. What that would mean for the Hawks, again, I'm I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I think Siakam would be a really good fit with Trey Young, in terms of like the things that you want to see Trey Young do. I don't know; it's tough because I, like this was the reason that I liked the idea behind the Dejounte trade too, where I was like, by necessity, this is going to force Trey Young to do the things that he hasn't done in the past. We've given him the benefit of the doubt, or at least I had where I'm like, he just hasn't played with other good creators, and that's why he needs to play with the ball in his hands so much. Hasn't learned to play off-ball because it's just had to be all him all the time. But then DeJounte came in, and Trey Young didn't really change his game at all. So I don't know if having like a front-court playmaker, which is the type of player that they've never had in the Trey Young era, I don't know if that changes anything. But I would be interested to see what that looked like offensively, how Snyder could make it work. And then obviously you get some added defensive insulation, which you really need, right? All the things that, that John Collins doesn't give you defensively in terms of secondary rim protection, in terms of like multi-positional defense, you get all that from Siakam. And I think, you know, that upgrade at the four could push them into a different stratosphere. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, like, I, I think I would definitely pull the trigger on that deal if it was there for Atlanta. Um, but you're you're saying you think they would need to add more.
0: Yeah, I I am saying if I'm the Raptors, I'm telling them you either add some lightly protected draft capital, the little of what you have left in mm. that deal, and if not, I need both of Griffin and Bufkin.
1: I just like you know, you've seen the reporting out there from Michael Grange about there maybe being this growing rift between Siakam and the organization, like can can that bridge be rebuilt? And, like, they just put the max extension offer in front of him and that solves all the issues. Like, because it's very possible that that's just the best that they can do. If they can even get the Hawks to put Griffin on the table, which they might not be able to. So, that like, they, they've backed themselves into a corner here where, I don't know, again, I, I'd be fine with them just extending him, right? Like, if if the offers aren't good, then you have to extend them. Like, that's, that's what it comes down to. But if Siakam's like, no... Screw you. Like, I wanted to reassign, and like, you're putting me out there in these trade offers. I'm not signing this. Then what do they do? Like, they've lost all their leverage at that point.
0: Yeah. This is a perfect segue to uh, tell our listeners to read my piece that went up on the score app yesterday titled Choose Your Own Adventure. (laughs) What's next for the Raptors? And uh, I go through the three options between standing pat, trading Siakam, or the nuclear trade Barnes win now option, but in the trade Siakam section of that piece, I do write, you know, when he didn't make all NBA this year and instead of qualifying for a five year, $291 million extension, he is only eligible to tack on four years and about 192 million onto his current deal it seems to be a blessing in disguise for the raptors because that is more in line with pascal siakam's value in the nba on the court. but what i wrote was that like if the raptors believed that siakam could live up to the value of that contract through his age 33 season or if they were sold on the notion that the team can win on a shared timeline between siakam and barnes, then i think that extension would be done by now. and the fact that instead we've heard nothing but trade reports as opposed to extension-related reports when it comes to Siakam is an indication that either A, they don't believe he's going to be worth the value of that contract through his age 33 season, or they don't think Pascal Siakam on that contract contract makes sense for what they think their team is going to be the next few years. Either way, I'm with you that if that's the case, that's fine. That's their prerogative to feel those things, but then you better move them. Before the season starts and before you start losing leverage and before you get to a situation where it's Fred Van Vliet all over again. So I know we weren't, this is not a Raptors uh, pod. We talked about them last week, but I, I just wanted to get that out there because I'm with you. A direction has to be taken one way or the other.
1: Yeah. Our new goal for the off season is to get through one podcast episode without delving into... The difficult spot the Raptors have put themselves in with uh, a cavalcade of questionable decisions. Um, okay, so let's just say that that deal doesn't get done. The Hawks go into the season looking exactly as they do right now. What's your outlook for them?
0: Meh. If they go in as it looks right now,
1: yeah, about about the same as they were last season. Maybe a little bit better.
0: Yeah, they're a.
1: I think their ceiling is
0: like. I don't know, somewhere in the four, five, six. Round. I think that's their ceiling. Like fighting for home court in the first round. I think their floor is like the bottom of the play-in. And I think their most realistic outcome and most realistic landing spot is probably the play-in.
1: I, I think they could get into the top six. I think the talent is there. Yeah. I trust Quinn Snyder to reorient their offense in a way that makes sense and hopefully get some buy-in from Trey Young in a way that allows him to operate within a more sort of equitable and free flowing system, because I think they actually do have, you know, the, well, maybe they maybe they would have it with Siakam. I don't know if they do have it at present, but just with DeJounte there, I think there's enough supplemental playmaking there that he doesn't have to be as ball dominant as he's been in the past. Um, But it it really is a question of whether he's going to buy in and, and like do things without the ball in his hands that allow that, System to work, and we haven't really seen that from him so far. But uh, I suppose we shall see. Uh, all right, let's let's talk about Dallas before we get out of here because we're already uh, butting <laughs> up against our self-imposed time limit here. So, what have you got on the maps? All right. Well, we already
0: talked about their draft night moves a few weeks ago, and you know they turned Bertans in the tenth pick, which ended up being Casey Wallace, into Rashawn Holmes, the twelfth pick, which was Derek Lively, and uh, the twenty fourth pick, Olivier. Max sense Prosper then they re-signed Kyrie and Dwight Powell and they signed Seth Curry and Dante Exum who shot the lights out in Europe which was interesting but the Kyrie thing like they basically had to bring him back because of what they gave up for him and the fact that they could not afford to replace him in free agency and so I get that in that sense Kyrie kind of had them over a barrel at the same time I don't really know who they were bidding against to give them the deal that they gave them, but fine. If you just look at it as like they had to bring Kyrie back, they did. Offensively, him and Luca will make beautiful music together and defensively, this team will continue to struggle the way they have. They're one
1: of a few teams who actually still have the full non-taxpayer mid-level exception, but I don't really know what... Well, they try. They tried to get Matias Stiebel, like that, yeah. that was almost what they used it for, but the yeah. Blazers matched.
0: I'm just kind of in a similar spot with this team where it's like, even with Luca and Kyrie, there are a lot of questions to be asked of this roster. They need to find at least one more guy. And they, I don't know. I mean, they have more young talent than they did a year ago after, after the draft, but do they have enough? And then when you look at the fact that they've got a top 10 protected pick going to New York this year, also carries over to 2025 with the rollover protection. So they can't swap a pick till 26. They can't trade one till 27. They've already sent an unprotected 2029 first to Brooklyn, similar to Atlanta. Again, yeah. all the And, the, and the 2030
1: swap to yeah. San Antonio in the Grant Williams so, deal.
0: Yeah, I think they can offer a 2026 and 2028 swap. And that's literally it right now. Between those two things and the young talent they have, like, is that enough to get, The other guy that they need, probably not, but maybe we'll see. Like, it just continues this pattern that, you know, I've been talking about for like a year and a half now. And yes, shortly after I started talking about it, they did make the West Finals and maybe people would laugh at me for that. But I, I kept saying it even through that Western Conference Finals run. And I continue to say it now, like the way they were moving, the moves they made, the You know, again, you go back to the Porzingis Porzingis deal. I don't really fault them for trying and making that deal at the time. It just didn't work. Sometimes that happens. The fit wasn't there. But overall, the moves they've made since then, like they just haven't put them in the best position to succeed and continue to build around Luka Doncic. And as I said a year and a half ago, even though it maybe seemed crazy then, I really do think this is all just like a slow, drawn-out process that moves them towards an ultimate... And where a very frustrated Luka Doncic looks around and realizes Dallas might not be where he can win.
1: They do have a frightening amount riding on Kyrie Irving and his availability and his level of buy-in and just the consistency with which he is going to commit and play and compete. Like that's, they have a ton riding on that and that's a frightening proposition for sure. But if they do have Kyrie healthy and available and bought in, I just could be a really good team. Like I think their offense is going to be excellent. And we saw that, you know, even as they trudged toward a really disappointing finish last season with Kyrie on the floor, their offense was great. And it was their defense, obviously that fell apart after they made that trade. Not that it had been any great shakes before they made that trade, but it really went into the tank afterwards. And I think the steps they've taken to address that and raise their defensive floor are actually really smart and could make a big difference. Like that's why I love the Grant Williams fit there. I think he addresses a lot of needs for them defensively in terms of just having a big versatile wing who can guard, you know, pretty much like two through four and even five in some cases. They've got a lot of centers now between, you know, Powell, Holmes and Lively. So I don't know that we're going to see a ton of time with Grant at the five, especially like they got Kleba there too, who will play the five sometimes. But like, if you think about the the sort of lineup flexibility that that gives them and the way that, you know, let's say they have like a Grant Williams Kleba front court where I think that can work defensively, but you can still go five out on offense. Like yeah. I, I, I like that possibility and I, I just think they're, they're going to be great offensively and they could be pretty decent defensively. Prosper so, should
0: help them defensively too. Like one of the few rookies who seems capable of being at worst, like
1: a passable defender, but probably something more than that. Right. And like, you know, giving up that 2030 swap is not nothing. Like that could definitely come back to bite them. Mm-hmm. We don't know if Luka's going to be there in 2030. And that plus the unprotected 2029 20, pick that they gave out in the Kyrie deal could really, really sting down the road. But for now, I think, you know, those were sort of necessary moves to try to keep the team competitive during the period in which they know they're going to have Luka Doncic on the team. Like they just had to do that. So I liked getting Grant and I, I like the idea behind signing uh, Tybal to that offer sheet. And, you know, if it hadn't gotten matched, I think he would have been a, a good fit there as well. In terms of what they do now with the MLE that's still available to them, there's not that much that's still out there. As far as, like, what they might do with the MLE that's still available to them, uh, I off the top of my head, I can't really think of anyone who is still out there that would be worth signing for more than the minimum. Uh, anyone come to mind for you? No. Like C- Christian Wood? <laughs> is that... Jeez, yeah. <laughs> they want to be in the business of, uh, of bringing Christian Wood back or... Uh, yeah, I don't know. S- Slim pickings at this point of the summer.
0: Like you mentioned, I mean, the the plan was obviously evident when they gave Feibel that offer sheet, but that uh, that didn't work out. So
1: Has I, don't really I don't not think there's signed anywhere. I'm not saying they thinks, would or should no. throw the full MLE at him, but <laughs> if they could use part of that, like he might make yeah. sense there.
0: Yeah, I think they are better than they were at the end of last season. I think they're definitely a more versatile defensive team than they were at the end of last season with Williams and Omax in there. Um, You know, I I still like them just kind of taking a flyer on Holmes too. Someone could rebuild his value. So they're better. And from that perspective, you can say, look, a team with Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving on it got better, more versatile defensively. Like, that's good. That's a win. And it is... But at the end of the day, they still don't have enough. I still don't think they have the asset capital to address their biggest needs or to find the guy that gets them over the hump and gives them enough. And they've now tied a lot of their future, or at least their immediate future, to Kyrie Irving. And we know how that ends. So I mentioned, like, meh for the Hawks, not feeling great about them. I The Mavericks improved by a clearer margin than the Hawks did. And yet
1: I might be less sold on them just because of the mix they have here. I'm going to go out and say that they should spread that MLE around. They should sign Justice Winslow, Hamadou Diallo, Danny Green, just sign a, just a bunch of these guys to fill out. Maybe one of them really hits and can be part of their rotation. Like potential, like, you know, defensively tilted wings who can potentially stick around offensively, like shoot the ball well enough to hang offensively. That's the kind of player they should be. I mean, Diallo is not going to do that, but he, he brings a lot of other offensive skills that I think could be valuable for them. Like they don't get to the rim enough and that dude gets to the rim. I would actually really like that fit. Diallo or Winslow. That's, that's who I would want if I was the Mavs, So Over under 59.5 games played for Kyrie this season. Under. Yeah, Agreed. But that, I mean, I have no reason to say that other than precedent. Like, when's the last time? Yeah. Well, he, he, he played 60 this season, but oh, yeah? he also, okay.
0: he wanted that new contract and
1: uh, he's got it now. <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah, I don't know. That, that's what is so tricky to kind of judge this team because I think they could be really good. Like, they have the pieces to be a very solid team. Like, they they have the right kinds of role players, I think, around Kyrie and Luca. Um I know you've been high on Josh Green in the past. He had a a pretty encouraging season. Yep, Hardy, toward the end of last year, I thought showed some very intriguing flashes as a guy who can create with the ball in his hands. He also gets to the rim a ton, although he struggled badly to finish there last season. But he shot the ball well off of the dribble. Like That could be a a very interesting piece for them. Um, And Green, in terms of his two-way ability, like he, he did it on super low volume last year, which was the big issue, but he shot the three extremely well on that low volume and also proved to be a guy who could attack a closeout, make the next pass, like uh, thrive in transition. Like he, I, I don't know, man. I think they're, they're an interesting team and there's a, a wide range of outcomes for them, but I do think, you know, the high end of that is being super competitive. Yeah, agreed. And like I said, I do, I
0: do think they got better and more versatile defensively, which they needed to get. And I do think their young talent is obviously more impressive than it was a year ago. When you add Lively and Omax to the mix, and you've got Hardy going into a, another season, and Green building on his development, and they do because of that dearth of draft capital and the fact that they still need to find another guy, those young guys like playing well and maybe one of them popping is really big for them because they can then use, you know, I I don't want to sound cynical and be like, well, the only value the young guys have to them is maybe being trade bait. But for where Dallas is and how all in they are, that is a big part of the value of those guys. I'm not saying they all are going to go, but ideally from Dallas's perspective, if they all play well and one of them pops, yes, like they will, most, some of them will be turned into something bigger. That's what Dallas is hoping. And so that is big for them man, how good a fit would Siakam be in Dallas? Awesome. (laughs) Like an awesome fit. But again, what do they like, unless it, I think the only way Siakam ends up in Dallas would be if the Raptors go into the season with him still on the roster, because then I think it allows Dallas young players to perhaps play like up their trade value a little bit. And then a team that doesn't really have any draft capital can make a move for Siakam without having to put picks on the table. Whereas right now, I think it would be a really hard sell, even with some of the impressive young talent we mentioned Dallas has, I think it would be a really hard sell to get Siakam with just those guys.
1: Yeah. it And it would just have to be like straight salary filler yeah. with those young guys on top. So, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe it's like green plus Hardy or green plus prosper or like some combination of, those three guys, uh, you know, alongside like the, you know, the Bretons expiring. And even that wouldn't be enough salary wise. Like you'd have to have Hardaway in there too, probably. It would be a tough construction to make work, but that would be a pretty good landing spot for Siakam and obviously a great outcome for Dallas if they can make that happen. But yeah, I don't know. So that's why I, I think, again, it's like there's these parallel tracks with the Mavs and the Hawks, right? Where they are chasing this high end outcome that they achieved a couple of years ago. And that has maybe led them to make some short sighted decisions, but they're also both in position where I think they could get back to that place. They need a couple of things to break. Right. And I like the off seasons that both of them had given the limited resources available. It just, uh, I, I don't know what that amounts to at the end of the day. And, it, it it's unclear where it's all headed. And, you know, the vibes in both places seem like they're hanging on by a thread right now.
0: Yeah, well, they'll be fascinating to watch. That's for sure. And especially to start the season, they will be two of the more interesting teams to monitor if they do go into the season as presently constructed. All right. Our plan to record a 45-minute pod has helped us avoid recording a 90-minute pod, but we're still at 60 minutes. So let's do a fan shout out, get the hell out of here and hope that maybe when, if and when we record next week, there is more action to talk about. This week's fan shout out is one of those ones where I'm hoping whoever it is actually reaches out because once in a while we'll get like comments on the app version, the in-app version of the podcast. And a few weeks ago, someone with the handle JJ Dynamite, it was after the, the Nuggets won the title and we talked a lot about Jokic. Uh, commented, didn't Joey Cash argue on the pod for Jokic to be MVP for the third time anyway? Obvious to anyone, he's better than Embiid and the playoffs only underscored his dominance. Uh, More so just interested in the fact that JJ Dynamite, whoever you are, clearly a Pound the Rock listener. And so, as we have done before, we encourage this handle on the app to come forward and reveal themselves so that we can get them the proper shout out they deserve. We've got a few banked right now for the next few episodes, but JJ Dynamite, if you're listening, as you clearly have before, hit us up on social media, as we encourage all of our listeners to do. Let us know where you listen from, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't, and we can get you a proper shout-out on a future episode. Until next week, well, maybe next week. I mean, we're we're in the kind of dog days of the off-season now, and if no Lillard or Harden or Siakam trade happens and... Everything else is ground to a halt. I can't promise we'll be back next week, but soon enough, you'll hear from us again. And until that episode, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Kisharo, Pound the Rock.